Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. This evening, as we <clears throat> prepare for our study in Zechariah, I just have um, at least one announcement that I uh, heard just as I was leaving uh, the house, getting in the car, and therefore my I have limited information, but got a, an email from Clay Ward that said uh, the uh, new church that we had just dedicated had a fire, and the uh, the fire, uh, while it didn't burn the building completely, <clears throat> it uh, damaged it to the extent that it will need to be completely rebuilt. And um, the information that that occurred uh, late last night or early this morning. And um, the information they have is that the fire inspectors and uh, those who are doing the investigating, uh, they think there there was foul play. They don't think it was just a... uh, um, a problem within the building. They think that, that something happened that caused the fire uh, beyond the mechanical structure of the building. Uh, they don't have a place to meet now. They're going to be meeting in uh, one of the homes tonight for their prayer meeting. And, <clears throat> you know, the prayer is that they can. Um, have the a, a quick determination, or at least this is I'm surmising this now, that they need a quick determination of what happened, so it can be released to uh, for uh, reconstruction. But we really do need to uh, be thankful that there was you know, no one was injured, uh, significant loss of of property. As a matter of fact, I at, I did get a chance to call in just before I. Uh, drove up here, and he was just walking out the door himself, Clay, and he said that uh, uh, they it was the auditorium that was damaged the most. As a matter of fact, it, uh, the, the way that the fire burned was that it, the roof ended up collapsing down into the auditorium. So uh, what that probably tells us is that all of the pews and uh, everything that was in the auditorium was, was destroyed. Uh, but uh, that's all in the Lord's hands, and uh, we'll just pray for that uh, church body, the body of Christ, that they can continue to be effective and that they'll be able to find a place to, to worship. So uh, with that, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. And I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that Um, you've again provided for us we're thankful that our lives are in your hands and there are many things that uh, enter our lives that uh, are either uh, greatly unexpected or uh, cause difficulties uh, problems for us seen as adversities and we we know father that uh, you've certainly provided for all of this we know that uh, in every way, you are our deliverer, and we simply need to trust you for uh, the lessons that we're learning, the uh, the marvelous grace that we see in all of these events. We pray specifically for uh, 
play Roma Bible Church and the destruction, the fire that they experienced, we pray that uh, they'll soon be able to begin the the work on that building, uh, getting the debris and the, uh, all the that which is considered uh, necessary to be removed. Uh, that they'll be able to begin work on it very soon, and that uh, the construction will go quickly. That they will be able to uh, return to that church, Father. We pray that um, the damage that it will be completely cover- covered. That um, there'll not be any difficulties in that regard as well. We also pray, Father, for our, our nation. Uh, continue to pray, Father, for a, a nation that is focused on our spiritual heritage and our the biblical principles upon which this nation was founded. We pray that we will function and operate uh, according to those principles. We're thankful for the, uh, the Constitution that we have, the spirit of that Constitution, which is found in the Declaration of Independence. We pray, Father, that we will have a nation that respects its laws, because, as John Adams says, that this nation with our Constitution and our um, uh, understanding of following laws is made only for a moral nation. And we pray that we would uh, raise children that are moral, that we would have uh, examples of strong morality for, for them, and that we as adults would abide by the laws and live moral lives as well. We pray as we continue our study in Zechariah that we will uh, see the importance of what we're studying and uh, and why it is here, Father, and how it applies to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Zechariah 9, and we have moved to the first burden of the two. One burden is found in Zechariah 9, uh, 10, and 11, and the uh, second burden begins in chapter 12. And last week, we uh, began chapter 9 with a, an examination of what's happening in verses 1 through 8. And uh, I wanted to make sure, as I finished last time, I had this sense that... Um, the passage probably did not necessarily come alive to us, and maybe it was because I was not as enthusiastic about it as I could. But the remarkable thing about this passage is that it certainly is prophecy. Not uh, everything, of course, we find in the Old Testament is prophecy. Some of it is historical. Uh, Some of it is just narrative. And much of it is going to be information that, while it tells us a lot about God and Israel and what's happened in the past, we sometimes overlook the fact that there's there's a significant uh, importance to uh, to a passage uh, beyond what we might think that is immediately tangible to us. And verses 1 through 8 are uh, extraordinary from the standpoint that this was a prophecy and uh, at the time that Zechariah taught it, that he presented it. But much of it uh, 
has is now historical to us because it occurred. And one of the, I think, the important things for us to recognize here as we look at the, these verses, uh, 1 through 8, is that they, be, they became part of history rather quickly because it was only 200 years later that we see Alexander the Great passing through this area. And it was very evident to those who were studying the text of Scripture and those who, uh, uh, who were living at that time that Alexander fulfills this passage of Scripture right up to verses 7 and 8. Uh, let's very quickly read this again. Now I have s- several points that walk us through this. But as we look at this, just think of uh, Zechariah presenting this information. And uh, it's, all, it's within, as I said, uh, it's less than 200 years later that the person found in this passage is going to appear. And what he accomplishes is almost as if this was reported after the events. And it says the burden, or we could say here the oracle, because that's the sense of what we have. Uh, Zechariah had a, a burden, but the burden is understood from the standpoint that it was a message, a message that he wanted to present. Uh, So we have the oracle or the message, the burden of the word of the Lord. And he once more emphasizes that this is from the Lord, from Yahweh. And it's the word of the Lord. Uh, Daber is the the word here that uh, is translated word, but it's the message again we can understand. So we have the burden, the message of the, the words of the Lord or the message of the Lord against the land of Hadrash and we understand that this is in the northern portion I showed us a map last time and I may go to that but this is a land uh, that's in the northern portion of the Levant up more towards uh, the area that we call today Syria and just south of what's modern day Turkey and it says, and Damascus, its resting place. I believe that at the time, uh, Aram was <clears throat> responsible for all this area. And that Damascus was what we would call the capital or the, um, uh, the, uh, the location for the governance for that entire area. <clears throat> And it says here in verse, uh, finishing verse 1, For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Uh, this is a great statement by Zechariah because wh- uh, what he is saying is that a- as I give you this history, this is not just the observation of, uh, of a man or um, uh, from mankind, but the... Uh, the importance of this is something that we see coming from uh, mankind or from the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre and Sidon at the time were uh, nations that were very prosperous, uh, actually uh, cities in that location. They were very prosperous, 
but they were um, they were going to be come face to face with Alexander, and they thought they would be able to resist him. <clears throat> but they will not. It says that they are very wise, and this is our Hebrew word chokmah, which means very often it's translated wisdom, and wisdom from the standpoint of ability. And we have, uh, as theologians, more or less given that sort of an interpretation of <clears throat> of the application of knowledge. Therefore, we have wisdom. We're able to apply what we know. Well, they were uh, exceedingly... Uh, they excelled at this, but we're going to see in verse 3 that Tyre, uh, in their wisdom, decided that if they... Uh, isolated themselves out on an, on an on an island that they would be safe. For Tyre built herself a tower, and they completely fortified the island. And I had showed you shown you this picture last week of the fortified uh, island that Alexander. It took Alexander all of about seven months to destroy. For Tyre built herself a tower heaped up silver <clears throat> like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Uh, it was a very wealthy location. They were very smug. They thought that they had, in fact, uh, protected themselves. They thought that uh, all of the uh, supplies that they had would be, um, would be sufficient. Behold, <clears throat> it says, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her tower in the sea and she will be devoured by fire. Uh, even though Alexander is the one who's doing this, he is simply an instrument that God is using. And this parallels, to uh, a great extent, the uh, the individual Cyrus, who God taps, we could say, as his servant as well. And Alexander, while not called his servant, we see in this passage... It says that the Lord is going to cast her out. Yes, it's going to be Alexander, but the fact is that it's the Lord who is bringing history uh, around to this uh, event and to this execution. <clears throat> and then in, in chapter five, in verse five, we see a reflection upon the Philistines and Ashkelon shall see it and fear. They, the Philistines, heard about what was happening in Tyre. And as a matter of fact, the king that we're going to see, his name was Battus, in Gaza, uh, knows this. He sees what's happening, but for some reason he believes that he's going to be able to resist uh, Alexander. But one of the cities here, uh, Ashkelon, shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. Well, they will be sorrowful after they are destroyed. And it took uh, Alexander all of about uh, five months to destroy Gaza. And Gaza, again, was a very fortified and secured uh, secured city. I had one more picture here for you with uh, uh, an aerial view of Tyre. And this is what it looked, how it appeared in 1934. Um, the uh, the destruction the, the causeway that Alexander built from the destruction 
of the city and all the buildings that were landward were just dumped into the uh, into the uh, into the water, and they walked right up to the uh, to the island of Tyre. Uh, this is uh, representative of Gaza, and uh, it was built on uh, previous uh, civilizations, we could say, and so it was on a mound. But Alexander just came down, and if, if he could uh, build a causeway out to an island, uh, this was not going to be a problem for him to build mounds up against the walls and soon destroy the wall as well. Uh, therefore, we see this. Gaza also shall be sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation, her future, her hope. The king shall perish from Gaza. And again, there was uh, a specific individual who lived here in Gaza. And he was the king that decided he was going to uh, resist, that uh, Alexander was not going to take that location, but in fact, he did. And uh, it was Bodus who ends up being executed by Alexander. And Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. Uh, so that's going to be a while before this they recover. And as a matter of fact, when we read in verse 6, we're going to see that there is going to be a future here for the, Phil for the Philistines and some of their... Uh, their cities. Verse 6 says, A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. The Philistines were, uh, were a tribe, a race of people, and as we read about them in uh, history, they uh, were a very proud people, and they didn't intermarry. But what is going to happen here is that they're going to be so... Uh, um, the influence of this destruction is going to cause them to end up uh, intermixing with other uh, other nations and other people so that they are now called here a mixed race. And then we get to, and by the way, in all of this as we've been reading, verses 1 down through 5, it's not until we get to verse 6 that we actually have uh, the, Lord, the first person singular of the Lord speaking. Uh, the rest of that is uh, Zechariah telling us what the Lord has told him, but it's always, this is what's going to happen to them. And now in verse 6, we have this first person plural. It says, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. We move into verse 7. I will take away the blood from his mouth and we believe that the, the antecedent here, while not specifically stated, is the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth. They were a very warlike people, and they were uh, very brutal in victory. And the abomination from between his teeth, uh, this is the removal of that culture and that uh, uh, the uh, the type of of action that they often pursued, and it says, "But he who remains, even he shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite." Well, what 
in the world does this mean? This means that there's going to be a change in the Philistines so that they're no longer number one. They're not going to be enemies of Jerusalem. But secondly, they're also going to have such a changed culture that they are going to turn to to God. And they will become part of Israel. Now, they're not going to be Jews, but they're going to be Gentiles that are going to merge with Israel. And it says they shall be like uh, an Ekron shall be like a Jebusite. They shall, be like, they shall be like a leader in Judah, so they're going to be involved. They're going to be participating in the um, the, live, the livelihood or the, the culture of Israel. And Ekron is going to be like a Jebusite. Uh, one of the uh, interesting things here that we read, and honestly, this gives us insight into what happened in Jerusalem after David conquered Uh, the city of Jerusalem there's very little said about uh, the Jebusites and Jabus uh, the name is changed from uh, Jabus to Jerusalem but we do read in several places about a Jebusite here or there and one of them was the individual who sold the property of uh, to David for uh, the temple. Uh, let's let's. Uh, well, I'm going to leave that for just a minute because we're going to work on some points here. But we believe that what happened is David didn't destroy uh, the people who were in the city, but they absorbed them, and the Jebusites became part of Israel. But you'll notice here it says, "I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abomination from between his teeth." But he who remains, even he shall be our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron, like a Jebusite. Uh, This has not yet occurred. Therefore, while we have in the first five verses something that has, in fact, transpired historically, verse 6, and and verse 6 as well, um, but verse 7, at least verse 7, begins something that is going to be yet future, something that's probably going to happen at the time of the Lord's return, at the millennium. And verse 8 says, I will camp around my house because of my army. And I spoke a little bit about this last time. Uh, I will camp around my house. The sense of the camping there is to... Uh, to occupy something or to surround it. And uh, camp or I will encamp, as somehow some uh, some tr- uh, versions translate this, but it's the idea of taking up residence there. I will return, we almost can say here, I will take up residence around my house because of the army. And because of the army here is... Um, gives us the sense and protect it or watch over it like an army would or protect it as an army. And then uh, the rest of the verse says, because of him who passes by and him who returns, no more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I have seen my eye, seen with my eyes. Um, there are some who believe when we get to verse 8 that this is Zechariah addressing uh, 
the historical situation with Alexander. And I will encamp around my house and, let's say, guard it like an army, protect it like an army. That because Alexander did not destroy uh, Jerusalem, that this is a fulfillment of that, uh, of that verse. But the fact is that while the Lord did protect Jerusalem, the rest of this verse seems to uh, weigh against that. It says, because of him who passes by and him who returns. Well, the word here for uh, because of him who passes by him or returns is the sense of passing, uh, passing over, passing through, or even uh, overrunning, overturning is another way that we can understand that. And it's, it's the idea that never again will someone uh, overrun or destroy my people uh, because now I am keeping watch. Uh, and this has not yet happened. This is yet future. Uh, those, no one shall... Uh, no more shall an oppressor pass through them means or because of him who passes uh, by and and him who returns it's the sense of marauders marauders coming and going uh, in Jerusalem and that has historically happened right up until well until today when uh, we can look at uh, many nations whether it was uh, the Ottoman Empire, whether it was the Persians, a resurgence of the Persians, whether it was the Romans, uh, whether it's the uh, Islam later on, uh, there were marauders that came and went, came and, and went. And so that, uh, I do not believe that this is a reference to Alexander. It says, no more shall an oppressor pass through them. Never again will this occur. Never again will uh, the uh, oppressors uh, overrun them for now I have seen with my eyes and the idea here the sense of seeing is the idea also of keeping uh, watching and the watching sense is to guard uh, this is yet future and this is something that uh, the Lord is going to do for Israel now uh, let's let's look at the significance of this passage from the standpoint of several of several points here. <clears throat> okay, here we are. Okay, first of all, what do we have here? First of all, we have Zechariah, who is giving a prophecy of the future which would not occur for another 200 years, for almost 200 years. He's giving this prophecy in about 520 B.C., and uh, Alexander is not going to arrive on the scene until 333 B.C., and he'll finally finish his first, uh, towards the end of that year, into 332. But, um, in other words, the fulfillment was not close at hand. Therefore, if someone would say, well, uh, you know, it's not hard to make a, a prophecy for something that is short term, something that is soon to happen. But that's not the case here. This was still 
uh, almost 200 years off. This was not something that could easily be seen or surmised so that we could make a a prophecy or a prediction. Uh, Secondly, Persia was at the height of its power and the region was functioning peacefully under the rule of Darius the Great, Darius the First. Um, There was no sense that someone else was about ready to uh, come and uh, challenge Persia. They had uh, uh, taken uh, Egypt. They had worked uh, through uh, Edom and Aram. Uh, there was no challenge to them at this point, and they're at the height of their power. So there's no one who is now believing that anything uh, is going to happen to upset that situation. Thirdly, Zechariah is able to provide specific names and locations for the future conquests. He provides us with the name of Tyre. He provides us with the name of Sidon. He provides us with the name of Gaza. And these are names in specific locations. Uh, How would he know that they would even be there uh, in in 200 years? But they were, and they were still prospering. Uh, Later, this, of course, would demonstrate that God's prophets are truly speaking for him. I mean, this is an indication of confidence in what the prophets are saying. Uh, the prophets are speaking for the Lord, and these prophets' messages are accurate and they're assured. They will happen. And this is great for us because we know that the other prophecies that we hear, that we read will, in fact, uh, that's reassurance for us that they will come come to pass. And, by the way, come to pass the way that they are prophesied. Fourth, the level of detail for the destruction of Tyre is remarkable and it's quite accurate. I mean, we uh, here is a Tyre that is going to uh, determine its safety, but yet it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be uh, turned into rubble and then it was, it was completely burned. Uh, Alexander um, was uh, really not known for his benevolence Uh, but he did show benevolence to Jerusalem in not destroying it, but we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But, uh, you know, uh, very often conquerors would leave uh, the commercial centers standing so that they could benefit from them, uh, but not with Tyre. Uh, Five, the Lord says that the Philistines, arch enemies of Israel, would be transformed into a people for himself. And that's quite a statement. There is no one in Israel that would have made that statement uh, unless it had come to him from the Lord. The Philistines would become a part of Israel as the Jebusites had done. And the passage that helps us to understand this is in 2 Samuel 24.16. Look at 2 Samuel Second Samuel twenty four sixteen. In Second Samuel twenty four sixteen, 
we see that David is going to purchase a piece of property. And in verse 16, it says, um, and of course, we almost have to back up just a little bit here. David has decided that he is going to number the people. But, and, and the Lord has numbered the people. Israel has counted, taken census previously. But the sense here, or the, the understanding is, is that David does this for his own personal welfare, his own uh, personal ego, to see the size of the people, the size of his, uh, his nation. And a plague is sent, verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from Jerusalem and said to the angel who was destroying it, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Well, that floor is, that threshing floor is the area where David is going to purchase. And we read that. Uh, in the following verses 18 and following but I just wanted to pull out we don't have the word Jebusite but it's found very few times in the Old Testament but here and at least maybe one other place we find that Jebusites uh, are going to be uh, kept or they were uh, still part of Israel and the same thing here is going to happen with the Philistines they're going to be part of uh, of Israel. And now, again, as I've said, as we move on to point six, is that there's no evidence that this occurred during Alexander's day. No evidence at all. Hence, we would say that it awaits a future fulfillment. Point six, a day was coming when the Lord would return to his house. And here, I believe, as I said last time, his house really is the land, uh, the land which he had promised to Israel. So there's coming a day when uh, the Lord is going to return to his house. Uh, this is an assurance that God had has not abandoned Israel, nor has he forgotten them. And there is not only a future for Israel, but it'll, but it will be one that includes the Lord once more being present and protecting Israel. So the Lord is going to return and Israel's not just going to kind of struggle along as a nation amongst other nations. It's going to be a nation where the Lord returns, takes up residence. Um, again, many believe that verse 8 here is a reference to God protecting Jerusalem from Alexander in 332 when he comes, when he returns. But, uh, it's true that Alexander didn't destroy Jerusalem and the Lord was in fact protecting the city but when we read the words never again we realize that uh, that can't apply to Jerusalem because it's not it's going to be in the not too distant future that Israel is going to be destroyed again so um Never again, when we see the word never again, will an oppressor pass through, pass over, or overrun my people. That type of immunity will only be fulfilled at the time of the Messiah's return. 
So point seven here is that the never again in verse eight foreshadows the introduction of the messianic king in verse nine. We're going to move from verse eight right to verse nine. And therefore, this passage, the never again, or in some people, um, no more shall an oppressor, that's also a translation. But I think never again is one of the better translations. Uh, This indicates that its fulfillment is in the end time victory of Christ at his second advent. Uh, rarely do we can we say never again for something until we finally arrive at the end of human history, and that's what we have here. Uh, the scope of God's glorious reign surpasses anything that transpired in subsequent centuries following Zechariah's ministry. So this passage clearly points to an eschatological fulfillment. That's what we have here. And then eight. God is not only able to foretell the future, but also able to bring about a future that prepares the way for his eschatological kingdom. Uh, you know, the remarkable thing is that uh, while we cannot see the design of God's plan, it, God is working all of these things to uh, his pleasure, and uh, so it works according to his plan. In other words here, God has a design for human history and he is in the process of bringing that design to reality. And so as we read this and see the uh, the prophecy, uh, what I, I was going to add another point and then I failed to do so. Uh, but another point here, and I think it's important for us, why was it important for God uh, in his prophecy to give us insight into this destruction of uh, Damascus, uh, Tyre and Sidon, uh, the Philistines, the cities of the Philistines. Why was that? Why is that included here? Well, I think it's because God gives us these pictures, these uh, glimpses uh, from the past, and we can see that it is a prophecy being fulfilled. And while there is much prophecy in our future that's not been fulfilled, we can, we can read this, understand that it was fulfilled, and fulfilled in uh, significant detail, and realize that God is not speaking uh, errantly, and that future, uh, that, that prophecy has, that has not yet been fulfilled, is in fact going to be fulfilled as it's been prophesied. All right, now verse 9, as we move on now to verse 9, we actually have a break, and the break here now is the coming Messiah. We've seen uh, the Lord's uh, judgment or punishment upon nations around Israel, and we see sort of this lead-in now to verse 9, which is the coming king. And verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, great word in uh, uh, Hebrew, it's hene. Hene, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. 
lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. Now let me continue to read into verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verses 9 and 10 go together. But one of them is fulfilled prophecy and the other one is yet future. And I'll discuss more about this next week. But what we have here is something that's called theologically telescoping, telescopic prophecy. Telescopic prophecy means that there is certain parts of prophecy that is, that is going to be fulfilled and other parts of it that is yet future. And so we don't see the whole prophecy fulfilled at once, but we see parts of it being fulfilled. Now, I found this uh, graphic that I lifted from um, Tommy Ice, Dr. Ice. And this is how he graphically portrays this. He says, what does the prophet see? In other words, what the prophet see and sees. And you'll notice that he has these mountaintops. And therefore, the prophet is not going to be able to see what's in the valleys. But he is going to be able to see these mountaintops. And what we are experiencing here in Zechariah 9 and 10 is not really a valley, although there is a valley there, but he is seeing two of the mountaintops. The first thing, here it is, uh, our viewpoint. We see the mountain peaks and the valleys from the side, and we can separate the first and second coming prophecies. So we're looking at it from the side, and we see not only the mountaintops, but we see the valleys, whereas the prophet doesn't see it that way. The Old Testament valley, the viewpoint of the prophets, so he's standing here in what could be called the Old Testament valley. But as he looks forward, he sees the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, and that is prophesied, and he knew that that was actually going to occur. In Isaiah, we see that there is a prophecy of the suffering, uh, the suffering Messiah. And therefore, that could be understood, Isaiah 53. But the next thing that actually occurs is the church age. But he doesn't see that. The prophet can't see what's in this valley. And in the valley is the, uh, the dispensation of the church. The next item, well, let me go through this. I just want to get one more item here, is what we're going to see is the... Uh, the setting and setting the stage for the second coming and prior to the second coming we are going to have the antichrist and you'll notice that even though the lord announces the rapture uh, while he is on earth the prophets didn't see that the prophets didn't see the church therefore they didn't see any 
the departure of the church either. So the next event that's really going to be happen as far as the prophets are concerned and what they saw would be Daniel's prophecy regarding the Antichrist. And then, of course, we're going to see the return of the Lord uh, and the millennial kingdom and then the destruction of the earth by fire. Those were some of the things that we could actually <clears throat> that could actually have been seen. And then we're going to get the rest of it, the holy city. But what was actually seen here would be this part of it. And there is some indication that we also had the destruction and the new heaven and the new earth here. Might as well include that, I guess. But what we're seeing now is this telescoping, uh, telescopic prophecy where Zechariah sees these events and he prophesies them together. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. Now, if we are reading this now and we think that there may very well be a separation, I think that we can tell that lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt and the fold of a donkey, doesn't seem to fit very well with verse 10, particularly the um, the sense of a a reigning, conquering hero. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall seek peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, there's a difference between those two verses, but for the most part, the prophets and those who were interpreting these passages did not necessarily make that distinction. Um, let me uh, press on here. Let me go back and get to where we were. Zechariah 9, I've got 9.9 nine there, or 9.10, but it should be 9.9. Nine. Let me uh, look at our, our passage. Uh, first of all, in uh, Zechariah 9.9, 9, uh, we have really a passage that is uh, that couched in the imperative for someone who is coming and it's supposed to be the response of those who greet him. Well, point one here, verse 9 is a direct prediction of the future Messiah. It's absolutely there. Zechariah uses this verse to announce the future Messiah's arrival. So point one is that verse 9 is a direct prediction of the future Messiah. Zechariah uses this verse to announce the future Messiah's arrival. Now, adding to that, the New Testament understands this verse to be the prophecy of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Um, and we see this. Let's keep our finger in Zechariah 9, but let's turn to, Zachar or to Matthew. Turn to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, 
Matthew 21, verses, verse 5. Matthew 21, verse, let me just begin here in verse 1. Now when, now when they, this is the Lord Jesus Christ with his disciples, drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. And you'll notice that that is all that's quoted from Zechariah 9.9. And the reason that this is all that's quoted is because this is the only part of Zechariah 9 and Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 that's going to be fulfilled. The second part of this, verse 10, which we'll study next week, is not going to be fulfilled until the future. It's an eschatological future that we have here for verse 10. Uh, this is also found, of course, uh, it's described in Mark and Luke, but it's found in John as well. John 12. John 12. And it's quoted in verse 15. John 12. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it's written, Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a, on a donkey's colt. Therefore, both Matthew and John recognized this as a passage, a prophecy in the Old Testament that is literal, literally being fulfilled. So we have a literal prophecy and we have a literal fulfillment here with this. All right. Secondly here, the prophecy begins with an exhortation directed at, and DZ here is not the militarized zone, I just, that's the daughters of Zion. So the prophecy begins with an exhortation directed at the daughters of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem. And I think both of those and most Scholars also believe this, that both are poetic terms describing God's fatherhood over Zion and Jerusalem. Uh, the, the understanding was that you know, God is, uh, in his uh, protection and care for Israel, uh, very often referred to them as children. They're the children of Israel. And who are they the children of? Well, we could say, well, it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were also, it was understood, that uh, they were God's children. Um, thirdly, third point here from Zechariah 9.9, 9, not 9.10, the names Zion and Jerusalem are used as a figure of speech. The capital city representing the entire Jewish nation. And we say this because when Jesus returns, 
he's returning to the entire nation, not just to the daughters or sons, um, but he's returning to uh, the entire nation. So it's not merely Jerusalem to which he's returning. And therefore, as we see the daughters of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem, it's um, a figure of speech for uh, the entire nation. Fourth, some of these words are very interesting. For the word rejoice literally means to twirl. It's It comes to mean rejoice, but the literal basic meaning was to twirl. And therefore, it carries the meaning of active and festive celebration. Uh, that's the, the sense of our word here. Uh, active and festive celebration. Five, the word shout is used of war cries. As a matter of fact, this is the word that Joshua uses uh, for the people when they are going to march around Jericho. And he tells them not to shout until he tells them when to do so. And it's the same word. So the word shout here is used for war war cries or... It's also used for loud shouting. Uh, the loud shouting was often used uh, for a, uh, a group of people who were uh, raising their voices and shouting. Uh, and therefore, it means that the nation is to respond vigorously. There's going to be, and these both are, by the way, imperatives. Uh, therefore, the Lord is telling Israel in this prophecy that they're to, to shout and rejoice, you could say. Uh, it's a time of 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 great fest. It's an it's a festive occasion. Now, what's remarkable here is that this was the time when the Lord Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem, and he doesn't enter as a conquering hero. He's entering, offering himself himself as the Messiah, but he is going to conduct something or uh, perform something prior to being the conquering hero he's going to the cross and I think that there's a sense here that this was going to be fulfilled just prior to the Passover and therefore just prior to the Lord going to the cross and literally the shouting and rejoicing here is for our atoning for the Lord's atoning work on the cross six all the Jewish people are exhorted to rejoice in the most exuberant way because of a great joy for the coming of the messianic king. Uh, This is certainly a prediction of that messianic king. The Lord is coming. Um, Point seven here. The word just is often translated righteous. It's the the Hebrew word just. the Hebrew word uh, tzaddik and it does mean righteous but here and in the context I think it has the sense of meeting a standard Um, not only meeting a standard but um, it has the sense of conforming to a certain criteria 
And therefore, I think a better translation, instead of saying he is just or he's righteous, I think we can say that he is the qualified or he is the legitimate. I like I like the word legitimate here. He's the legitimate king. Rejoice because here is someone who is not just righteous, is righteous, is just, but it's the legitimate king because there are going to be many who come who think or claim to be the Messiah. And this one is the legitimate king. Uh, the word has the idea of conforming to a standard or meeting certain criteria. And the Messianic king riding into Jerusalem is fully qualified to take the Davidic throne. He is qualified to be this uh, king that follows in the Davidic line. Therefore, another word I think is legitimate. And I'm going to change that next word as well here in point eight. The verb for salvation here is yasha. And it's in the passive voice. This is rather interesting. Um, therefore, we don't have him writing in and delivering. That's not really the way that this is, is the sense of this. It carries the idea of receiving or possessing something. And therefore, uh, a translation of bringing deliverance. Or we could say being victorious. And I think that is probably the best translation. So, as we look at my New King James translation, I have the phrase, having salvation. But that's misleading. He, he's not, or we could say, and the word could, should probably be better, having deliverance. Having deliverance with, will work. Uh, the New American Standard Bible has endowed with salvation. But having salvation or endowed with salvation really is, a, 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 again, a misleading translation because we often think of sal salvation as being soteriological. This is physical deliverance. This is physical deliverance. So what do we have? Zechariah, in context, is describing physical deliverance. Therefore, the deliverance is closer to that of a victorious warrior. And therefore, I think a better translation here is that he is legitimate and victorious. That's how I would translate the second or that part, that, that line in verse 9. Now, uh, point 9, the word lowly means poor or afflicted. And here is best translated humble. I'm not going to change that translation. I think I'll just stay with it. But it means humble. And the context has one conqueror coming on a war horse in a superior, arrogant way. And that, of course, was Alexander. And again, there are some who see this as Alexander all the way uh, into verse 9. But most of those are rabbis uh, that reject you know, the Messiah. But here, what we see is that the context has one conqueror who was Alexander. But this now is not like Alexander. Alexander riding in in a war horse or in a chariot. This individual, who we know to be the, the Lord Jesus Christ, is arriving on a donkey. And therefore, 
This one is coming in humility, or in what we would say is a non-conquering way. The picture of riding a donkey presents a much different picture than that of a conquering hero. And that's the difference between verses 9 and verse 10. And it wasn't, at least we don't have the sense that there were prophets that made that distinction. Uh, Verse 10. This verse was literally fulfilled on Palm Sunday when Jesus of Nazareth entered Jerusalem on the fold of a donkey. And as we look at these words in the Hebrew, um, we see that riding lowly and riding on a donkey. The word there for donkey is not a, um, a youthful or young donkey. It's simply the normal word that we would use for uh, a mature donkey. The colt is a male donkey. And the final word for donkey there is a female donkey. Therefore, what we have, even though the pictures that we often have is of a rather small colt, we don't believe that that was necessarily the case, that the Lord was riding on at least a donkey that was mature enough to carry him. Uh, And we read here and there that very often uh, kings would ride on donkeys. Well, some did, but it was a uh, what we could call a rather uh, a special form of transportation. But uh, kings very often didn't ride on donkeys. They were on horses or they were in chariots. Uh, but the aristocracy rode on uh, donkeys. And therefore, the... Uh, we could say, uh, you know, maybe a, the royal family or someone like that, and I think that gets us a little closer to what we have here. All right. Um, point ten, therefore, tells us that uh, this is the prophecy, and it's one that was literally fulfilled on Palm Sunday. Now, uh, in closing, what I would like to do is some of you have. Uh, your uh, Nelson Study Bible. I don't know if you have your Nelson Study Bible with you. Some of you do. But I want to read uh, something that was written in Zechariah. And it's one of their in-depth descriptions of what happens here. And just follow along as I... I, Let me very quickly uh, read this. It says, Luke tells us, that after Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples returned to Jerusalem. They also went back to the scriptures. The Old Testament suddenly blossomed with good news. Everywhere they looked and found evidence that pointed towards the specifics of Jesus' life and his ministry. When they wondered why they had missed the connections before, previously, they must have also remembered Jesus' promise. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. When the gospel writers recorded the details of Jesus' life, they often used references from the Old Testament to illustrate how clearly Jesus fulfilled the character of the promised Savior and the prophecies regarding his ministry. They particularly enjoyed enjoyed quoting Old Testament passages that clearly predict the suffering and rejection aspects of the Messiah's role. For them, it was the central theme that set Jesus apart 
from the popular ideas of a conquering and powerful political Messiah. Zechariah 9, 9, and 10 presents a prophecy whose fulfillment was clearly set in motion, although not completed, by Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on a colt, the well-known triumphal entry. Both Matthew and John mention this passage. John even notes that the disciples saw no immediate connection between Jesus riding on the colt and his identity as the messianic as, as the Messiah prophesied in Zechariah. After Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him in John 12:16. These verses in Zechariah include an important transition. The arrival of the delivering or saving king is followed immediately by a description of the effects of his long-term reign. And this is an example of prophetic compression. They call it compression here. Viewed from the border, from the broader context of prophecy, Zechariah was mentioning together two aspects in God's plan which are actually separated in time. The coming king would arrive twice. Jesus came first as a humble king of peace and salvation manifested in Jesus' early ministry and his death on the cross. Second, Jesus, second, Jesus was, will come as a victorious ruler over all the world who will speak peace to the nations. We should rejoice over Jesus' first coming and anticipate the complete fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy at Christ's glorious return. One of the remarkable things about Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 is that they they contain the most quoted passages in the Gospels. So when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were writing, they went to Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 most often to quote verses. Uh, the, uh, the writers of the epistles uh, went many other places as well. But Zechariah, uh, chapters 9 through 14, are the most quoted uh, passages in the Gospels. Well, anyhow, this is a, a remarkable passage, and I'm really trying to bring out the fact that while at the time what Zechariah was saying, it may not have seemed that significant, but it really was, and it can have impact for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Zechariah. We're thankful for, for this prophecy. Help us to see here that what Zechariah said, as far as a pro- prophecy concerning the destruction of the cities along the coast at that time, truly came to fruition in Alexander. And while that was almost 200 years later, it still came to fruition the way that he predicted it, the way he prophesied. And the reason we can say that uh, it did is because we know it came from you. And your vision of history is perfect because you are outside of time. We're thankful, Father, for the example of this prophecy being fulfilled. Therefore, Father, we know that other prophecies that has that have not been fulfilled yet, we can anticipate them being fulfilled exactly as you have given to us. Father, we continue to pray for 
uh, Clay and the church, Clay Ward and Clay Mormon Bible Church, uh, we're thankful that they're still getting together tonight. They were not daunted by the fire. We pray that the church will be able to continue to function, that they'll be able to get to the bottom of the fire and begin the reconstruction. We pray that they'll uh, that all the resources that will be needed will be pro- provided for them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.